right. I'm ready. Okay. Right, let's keep, uh, keep it up. Let's keep it moving. Okay. Did you did you didn't have anything anything you wanted to say right off the right off the hat right off the bat? Um, well, you know, I'm gonna. The only thing I'm gonna say is, uh, you know, as usual, I'm gonna start this. Uh, well, you know, like any episode, I'm gonna be disparaged and disrespected and disagreed with throughout this episode. You know, um, and I'm just gonna go inside this off this episode by saying I disagree with those points. Okay, um, that's go. good. <laughs> All right, we're back after that minor minor sound adjustment. Yep. All right, good. All right, well, I have news. The news. Hit me the news. with the news. An Australian woman survived for five days in the bush off wine and candy. She was rescued by helicopter from the Midamida bushland, which I guess is a dense eucalyptus forest, on May 5th after her car got stuck in the mud trying to do a U-turn. <laughs> trying to get through a U-turn? Yes. She got, she, she got stuck in the bush. Wait. When someone says they get stuck in the bush, doesn't that mean they just got, like, stuck in some part of 99% of Australia? Yes. It's pretty much they didn't get stuck in Sydney or Perth or, or Melbourne. Perth, yeah. Know, or, or, or Melbourne. So I know. guess, yeah, she said she had no cell phone service and some pre-existing health issues that made walking not an option. <laughs> Luckily, she had a few snacks prepared for the two-hour drive and a bottle of wine that was a gift for her mom. <laughs> She said she didn't drink, but the bottle of wine she eventually consumed because she didn't have any water, which I think is probably a bad choice. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like she's having a pretty kick-ass time. You know? I mean, yeah, just like a day just drinking wine and snacks. Sounds it sounds, fun. It, it's, it, it kind of like, I mean, it sounds like she was actually kind of in trouble. But it also sounds like she was like maybe five miles from like, from like civilization. And she was like, uh, you know. Somebody will find this, me eventually. This trick knee of mine's really been bothering me. I think I'm just gonna drink wine and eat, eat Hang snacks out for a and, bit. until someone handles this for me. You know. Yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah. So fun. I mean, hanging hats off to her. That sounds great. You sounds know? great. Yeah. All right. Well. What did she say when they when they when they picked her up? I don't know. Probably thank you. Like 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 Oya Dingo, don't eat my baby. <laughs> put a shrimp on the body. Dingo ate my baby. Yeah, put a shrimp on the body. I'm okay. not sure. That wasn't in the interview. How long was she in the car? Or, or you know, in the in the in the bush. Five days. Five days. That that that's that actually is, a pretty significant amount. That of time. is a while. That is a while. You know. I I'll I'll give her that. I can't. Uh, frankly, I'm looking forward to the movie coming out. You know. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready yeah. to hear about it. I feel like somebody gets stuck in the bush, like, you know, you know what I'm saying. Wink, <sighs> wink. But actually, gets stuck in the Australian bush. Yeah. Pretty frequently. Yeah. I mean, but, once once again, stuck in the bush. Like any 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 car trouble in ninety nine percent of Australia is considered getting stuck, stuck in, the, in bush. the bush. Yeah, yeah, you're it's right. It's a very broad term. Yeah. What a what a strange place. Well, how about this? Scientists Hit at me. the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology in Socorro, New Mexico, are using dead birds to make drones for wildlife research. Dead birds. Dead birds. Doctor Mustafa Hassalian Hassal Hassanalian. Dr. Mustafa, okay. a mechanical engineering professor, had the idea when artificial mechanical birds failed to yield their intended results, so they turned to use taxidermy bird drones as their next option to study the formation and flight pattern of flocks of birds. So they're, used, they're making drones out of, like, so they already were making mechanical drones made to look like birds. Yes. And they're currently actually just using dead bird carcasses in a yes. macabre experiment to like once again like make like these fake birds yeah it again has birds aren't real.com people visit the website all right yes they have like you been, have you been on that website no i have not you should check it out okay i'm sorry i'll go i'll do it later but they yeah the pictures were like they pretty much had like taxidermied birds and just kind of stuck them on drones it was pretty funny this is like this this is like not a new concept that like most birds we see in society are not actual real live birds but they are in fact like drones made by the government to spy on us i can't prove them wrong when put it that way i feel like we see a lot of dead birds that yeah. are definitely not drones you know yeah i mean those are the ones that have been downed by the by the by the drone birds by the drone know? the drone yeah. birds are hunting the it, real birds it, yeah exactly they're downing them and then you know who picks those dead birds out the people who want to take turn the carcasses into more government more drones, drones? huh birds aren't real.com and this merch. New Mexico thing is not actually for research; it's for fun, or to cover up, <laughs> cover up some some bird drones that have been found, maybe. Exactly. Wow. Precisely. Okay. Birdrone.com. All right, I believe it. Yeah. So um, I mentioned this earlier, but New York City's next step in their eternal war against rats has prompted them to hire their first rat czar. 
Yes, yes, yes. yes. Wrecking. Yes. Wrecking, yes. Mayor Eric Adams announced that Kathleen Corradi would be appointed Ratsar to combat the growing rodent population. Kathleen has an education department employee and will eradicate rats instead of educate our rug rats. You know what I'm saying? I didn't get that one at all. But all right. <laughs> Research on urban rats is slim and rat complaints have increased since the pandemic when food waste decreased from like restaurants. So I guess the rats had to turn to alternative food sources and like they become babies? like a bigger problem. Yeah. Yeah, just breaking in people's houses. Yeah. So the first step in New York City's plan to, you know, kind of fight the rat problem is to leave trash out for a shorter amount of time before it gets picked up by sanitation workers and rat surveillance programs. So they're going to, like, monitor the rats with, like, cameras and stuff to try to, like, figure out about them. Like, I feel like you should just, you know, let people start shanking rats, you know? Yeah, but uh, it seems like like this rat star is very, like... I mean, as expected, she seems the rat like czar is very pro rat. She's pro-rat. a rat sympathizer. No, no, no. Yeah, it seems like she's very like pro rat, and it's like we, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I feel like there's like, examples of this like all the time. You know, like like I'll bet, uh, I'll bet like when Genghis Khan and the Mongols were like, you know, trying to take over all these other countries, countries would like create like, oh, like here's a Mongol czar to lead our defense, and he was just another Mongol actually. That's all I got for you. I'm not really sure where that where that was going. I thought I thought that was gonna catch on. Someplace, no, I, I I agree. I think yeah. I think that's about right. Yeah. So okay, so it's just they're trying to like they're trying to like uh, clean up the food faster, and also trying to like learn more about the rats and better understand the rats instead of just maybe kind of kicking the rats around a little more. You know. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know what to say. Maybe they should just like. Ooh. Whoa, excuse me. Release a bunch of cats and then make themselves have a cat problem, but the cats can hunt the rats. It'll be rats versus cats in the streets, you know what I'm saying? That's pretty good, honestly. Like, hopefully they kind of take each other out to a certain extent. Because also, yeah. r- rats are fucking massive. Rats will definitely down a lot of cats. Mm-hmm. You know? And also, it's like, I feel like this, like, rat sympathizer, they're also, like, I feel like they're underestimating the rat problem. It's like, if rats really wanted to, you ever seen the movie Willard? Terrifying movie. No. <laughs> It's based okay. Well, we're, okay. Quick pause, people. Quick, quick, quick movie review. Willard is about this man who like could speak to rats and kind of like tell them to do things, you know. And he's kind of this weird little fuddy duddy man who kind of goes through life, kind of gets pushed around, bullied a lot. And but eventually he kind of like snaps, you know, kind of like kind of like the Joker a little bit, except it's more about rats than like jokes. I don't know. Um, and eventually he starts commanding these. Hordes of rats. of rats, yeah, 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 to like uh, to kill people who he didn't like or who wronged him. It is actually like a pretty like scary movie. Um, it's like that guy in India that has now started like speaking to crows. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's been ages since I since I seen. I saw it like a long time ago. Maybe we should watch it. That sounds pretty. Good. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie. Um, right. Anyway, check it out. But cool. yeah. Well, that was all. Okay. That, well, I'd like to hear more about this crow thing at some point. The crows? Next time. Okay. Next time. We'll, we'll talk about some crows yeah. before. Well, I kind of... You have requested to be more informed about the, the topics. As, as, as a quick little, like, you know, breaking the fourth wall, letting the audience, you know, to kind of... You know, I, I rarely know a single thing that's going on. Well, at like, first I wanted, you know, the novelty of a surprise. Yeah, but, like, a lot of times, especially when you're doing a podcast, like, the... Essence of surprise is just me not like having anything meaningful to say about anything. <laughs> well, then I guess we'll lose the novelty of surprise, and I will tell you the topic like I did today. And will you have more to say today? Absolutely not. We'll continue. <laughs> just hmm. kidding. Hmm. Well, I see this podcast episode is going to be like every other one, even though I have ruined the element of surprise. Magical and wonderful. Just like every other episode? Okay. You, that you don't even listen to? <laughs> I'm on the show. <laughs> I'm on the show. Hmm. <laughs> Why? This week, I want to talk about the survival of ultramarathoner Mauro Prosperi. And this is not a surprise to you because I already told you this. I do. You did tell me about this. And first of all, as my first sort of uh, input, now that I'm... Been, been informed. I did look this up, and it's not Mario Prosperi. It's Mario Prosperi. Mauro, not Mario. Mauro Prosperi. Mauro Prosperi. Pro, pro, prosperi. Hmm. I thought you were actually going to like come in and surprise me with something knowledgeable to say. Isn't this knowledgeable? Prosperi. All right. You're right. You're right. Thank well, you. let me line this up for you. Let prosperi. me let me let me paint the scene. <laughs> okay, please hmm. go ahead. So, on April 10th of I'm 1944. 
AE runners began the Marathon of the Sands, which is also called Marathon de Sable. Um, which, Marathon de Sable? Sable. Sable. Which is a six-day, 155 mile, which is 250 kilometer, Perfect. race through the Sahara Desert that has been dubbed the toughest foot race <coughs> wow. on Earth. That, that one hurt my chest. Okay. Is it Sahara or Sahara? What? It's Sahara. Sahara? It's Sahara. I always say Sahara. Right. That's why people trying to like say things correctly. It's Sahara. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's like what are, what are the other what are the other ones that are common 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 like that? Uh, uh Appalachian. Yeah, yeah. I mean like like everyone's like, oh Appalachia. I I live in Northern California, but I love the idea of taking a trip to Appalachia. It's Appalachia. Fucking idiots. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Sahara. Or whatever. Yeah, Sahara. Sahara. Oh, I'd love to go. Travel about and see the zebras in the Sahara. Like, There's look, no zebras look, look, there. Look, fucking Karen from Orange County. It's Sahara. Okay, and always <laughs> there are no to... zebras. The zebras are all dead. I hope not. Jeez. There's no zebras in the Sahara. There could be. Have right. you seen Lion King? That was in the Sahara. No, it wasn't. Could have been. All right. They weren't very specific. Hmm. It was definitely in Africa somewhere. That that is true. It that certainly wasn't in like fucking Nebraska. <laughs> so it could have been. It could have been. been a big zoo. They probably have pretty loose animal That's laws. That's a really good. I think you know. I, someone needs to rewatch The Lion King and consider the p- possibility that it was really a narrative about like a big zoo, like like you know how like they have these big like open zoos. Like, are there ever any people in The Lion King? I don't think there's ever like human presence in The Lion King. But, like, you, like I, I feel like there could be subtle plot points that like involve the influence of like humanity. And turns out this thing's just in like Central Michigan. It's just like a big animal park. It's like Tiger King. Yes. That'd be pretty sick. Yeah. All right. Well. So, the Sahara Desert can reach up to 115 degrees Fahrenheit and is 3.6 million square miles of sand. What's that in Celsius? I don't know. All That's right. Good question. Well, you, 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 you did the miles to kilometers for me, so I thought you came with Fahrenheit to Celsius. No, I didn't want to do it. Kind of inconsistent. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> the the desert is about the size of the United States, including Alaska. What? Yeah, it's huge. The temperatures on the surface of the dunes have been recorded at over 180 degrees Fahrenheit, and gazing out over the dunes has been described as feeling as if you are on another planet. So, our man, Mauro Prosperi, Thank you. Is a 30, not, or was a 39-year-old Italian police officer at the was. time with a passion oh. for extreme sports. What's whoa? Well, I, I, did you have something meaningful to say because you did some research? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Mauro was born on July 13th of 1955 in Rome, Italy. Roma. He joined the police force in 1973. <laughs> what? And was a natural athlete. I don't know. Roma? Roma. Like a tomato. Roma. Roma. Roma tomato. Marinera. Yeah. Okay. All right. He works in... I Crown think you Con- actually might be right about that one. I think in Italy, like, it's, think actually, it it's actually called Roma. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, mamma italiano. A hey, mambo. I thought they said the, Roma I somewhere I didn't need that at all. But like, <laughs> so pop, pop quiz, where, where does the name Rome come from? The Roman Empire. Right. But where does the word Roman come from? Romulus and Remus. Yes, I didn't think you were going to know about that. It's very well. Continue. All right. I think Romulus is a dope name. It is a cool name. Yeah. We should name our next dog Romulus. Actually, Roman from Succession, his actual name is Romulus. I had a social studies teacher that named his kid Maximus. They called him Max. I'm like, that kid's going to come out a scrawny little shit. Yeah, Maximus. <laughs> He's not going to be a Maximus. Yeah, no. There's like, there was this... Um, like, how did your wife let you do that? There was this church lady from, from Georgia where I grew up, and they named their kid, like, Titan. I'm like, oh. dude, your kid's going to be, like... You're gonna, your kid's going to be, like, squirrely, 112 pounds as of, like, 18 years old. He's probably going to deal drugs. Or, like, be, like, Titan. a savant on, like, the violin or something. Like, yeah. that's great, but, like... Or be, like, a savant Titan. on, like, the internet forums, you know? Just a real Reddit troll, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Hopefully this podcast eventually makes him, like, gets of who I'm talking about, because I don't like him. All right, good. Yeah. Titan, if you're out there? I'm sure Titan's fine. I just hate his dad. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mauro worked in crowd control for the police force, and which he did not like. But he found it very convenient because Italy pays for its police force to train to be, like, a national caliber athlete if they choose. So they pretty much get, like, paid leave to go, like, train to be, like, an Olympian or something. That's sick. Yeah, so that's, like, why he went into the police force. Because he, like, didn't really want to be a police officer that bad. He just wanted to, like, work out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's why, like, a lot of people become, like, firemen in the, in, in the States. Do they like, do the same thing? 
Actually, yeah, I think because, like, you have a decent amount of downtime as a firefighter. Yeah. Um, and, like, I I mean, I used to live right next to a bunch of firefighters in Austin. And Ooh, they always sexy. Yeah, and they always, exactly. Um, and they had their <laughs> garage door windows open all the time. And oh, those dudes, all the, God, you just really had a real show going on down no, there. They, they, they always had, they always had their, um, their garage door open, and they had, like, a full gym in there. And it was just these dudes just kind of, like, working out and, like, playing pickleball 24-7. Actually, I mean, I'm sure they fought fires. You know, firefighters save lives, whatever, you know. But I'm pretty sure these guys got to spend about 75% of their waking time literally just, just like, like, bodybuilding. Yeah. Now I'm distracted. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, he chose to, you know, train, whatever. In the 1980s, Morrow met an English-Russian translator named Sinzia at a pre-Olympic event. She was attracted to his hot Italianness and competitive drive. They were married within six months of meeting and where, settled where, where, down where, in Sicily. Where was Cinzia from? I don't know. I think she was also Italian. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. I'm not really sure. So she was into his sexy Italianness, and she was. And all the interviews, they were like, they were just instantly like very attracted to each other. Okay, and her name. So was, I'm just, I don't know. And her name was Cinzia. <laughs> they settled down in Sicily. They had three children together, and Mild continued to compete in athletic events. He was an Olympic pentathlete, which is a race that involves fencing, a 200-meter freestyle swim, equestrian show jumping, pistol shooting, and a 3,200 cross-country run. Whoa. Isn't that... That's, like, that's, very, that's five very... Ran- like, they, like, the honestly, equestrian they, show jumping. How do you go from swimming to jumping on a horse? No, they could have had cup stacking in there. Yeah. It just as much sense as like, that nonsense. Yeah, it's very strange. Like I know like the pentathlon was a thing, but I wasn't really exactly sure... Like what the events were, and these are not what I thought it, it would be. It sounds like the pentathlon was invented by some douchebag who was good at those five things. And he's just, like, picking something he can be an Olympian like, at. Or, like, pretty... he wasn't good enough to, like, win gold in, like, one of the events. And he's like, right. you know what I'm mid at? These five things. I'm mid at all five of these things. I'm the only one who's such a weirdo to be, to be into the, like, these five things. No one's going to be able to, like, yeah, be, be in the aggregate all five of these things. Let me lobby for this to be an unlimited. And these sport. are like rich people sports, yeah. like fencing, equestrian, cup stacking is also pistol a, shooting. Yeah, that's also a very sport of the elite. Cup stacking. Yeah. yeah, when growing up, you were actually trying to get one of those cup stacking timer um, little. Mats. We had it in gym class. We cup stacked in gym class with the mats and everything. Oh, two hundred dollars. What? Yes, oh. those things were expensive. Wow, my school must have had a pretty high budget. Yeah. I don't know. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So we, he re- we, we just had someone have to go 1,000, 1,000, 3,000 behind us. You know? <laughs> just, <we laughs> and you solo cups and you just crush them <laughs> all the time. with the person behind you about how long you took, you know? All right. So he retired as a pentathlete in 1994, but was searching for his next passion when his friend informed him of the ultra marathon in Morocco and called and, well, so his friend informed him of the ultra marathon in Morocco and Mara was very intrigued from the very beginning. And so he and his friend Giovanni planned to both run this grueling Marathon de Sable together. Okay. So this marathon, <laughs> there's like six stages, but I guess there's like, there technically are like, I looked at the website and I guess it's like five stages, but like one of the stages is really long, so they cut it in two. But like, they're pretty much, there's six days. They run anywhere between like the end run on day six is like 4.8 miles but, like, the middle run on day four is the longest at 53.6 miles. Mm-hmm. So, and these are all normally in kilometers. That's why they're weird mileage numbers. But. And, why, and why are they cut into stages? Do they, like, kick people out for taking too long? Yeah, so I yeah. guess, like, you get whatever, a certain amount of time, like a day or whatever, yeah. to run this 18.8 miles. And if you don't, like, hit the next check, I guess, yeah. at, like, that point, then I think you're disqualified. We, I did, like, a big, like, I think I think I did, like, a 100-kilometer canoe race, I told yeah. you about, and there were stages in that where if you didn't, like, there were people with timers, and if you didn't hit these points on the river, like, in, you know, within a certain time frame, you would be, you know. They like, just told you to go get out. <laughs> yeah, actually, they did. Well, but also, it's, like, a safety thing. It's, like, yeah. they, they, were, they didn't want to be there, like, all night, you know. Yeah, like, like, no, like, that makes they, sense. They, they had to kind of, like, have people, like, they had to have staff kind of, like, following people to make sure everyone actually got through yeah. it, you know. Um, and we were the last, we were the, we were the last group to finish within, like, all, like, to like, to like that, actually like, finish. actually finished, but there without, was... without getting kicked out. Yeah. Yeah, we were the very last. And it's, like. I mean, like seventy five percent of the the teams got kicked out. That's pretty good. You the, other, the, the other guy, the other guy in, in the canoe was working his ass off. <laughs> um, That's funny. Yeah. So this marathon, 
The runners have their supplies, clothes, compass, food, sleeping bags, etc. in like backpacks and stop at water stations along the way. And water is rationed at these points to, and if like a participant exceeds like their water ration, they get a time penalty. You run and then you get a certain amount of water. And if you drink like more water than you're supposed to, you get a time penalty kind of thing. Oh, what a, what a, what a sadistic little I game. know. Isn't that mean? And, but like in between these runs, like they're on their own. There's not like really like pace cars, I guess, going next to them. They're just kind of like, you're at one checkpoint. They're like, all right, see you at the next one. And if you don't make it there, they're like, where'd they go? <laughs> it seems like there should have been. Maybe. I don't yeah. know. Well, there might, this was at this point in time. There might be, because yeah. this marathon is still like, or this ultra marathon is still like going. Oh, uh, I'll bet they have like. So I bet like yeah. it's a lot safer now, especially after this. So but back, when was this? 1994. Oh, okay. So it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, not really. But, but today. 1994 was a more adventurous time though, for sure. 30 years ago? Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, a, a less than 30. Closing on that dirty thirty people. Ooh, November. I was gonna say that's like right. You were going November, to ninety three. Yeah, this November people, dirty thirty for forest. You know, we're gonna, woo, woo, we're gonna woo, woo. drink bush light. And I'm gonna go to bed early. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right, yeah. but it's gonna be fun. Yeah. All right. So, Morrow, he begins training for this race by running about twenty five miles a day, which is forty kilometers. I did convert very random things throughout this. Yeah, but I say I, well, I, I, I've yet to hear any Celsius. <laughs> He steadily decreased his water intake to acclimate his body to perform while dehydrated. His wife was very skeptical about this ultramarathon. Skeptical? Skeptical. Skeptical. Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) But she ultimately supported his passion. This marathon, it was very risky, and participants had to sign paperwork assigning where their body should be sent should something catastrophic happen during their run before they started the race. And so his wife was obviously very worried about this as her and Morrow had three kids, all younger than eight years old at this time. Yeah. But he told his wife that he would be fine. He may just come back with a little sunburn was the worst that would happen. I'm sure that really like, you He's going to eat those words, really you know sure what I'm that, saying? Yeah, like a, like a shirt, his wife, you know? Yeah. Yes. So at the start of the race, Morrow immediately loves the experience and is mesmerized by the beauty of the desert. He keeps his pace for the first three days and ends up in seventh place overall. They stop at a checkpoint and prepare to settle in for the evening after the third day. Morrow hangs his Italian flag on his tent so he can meet up with the other Italians and they can hang out and eat carbs or yeah, whatever they like do. Eat pasta or yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't really know. Like, what do you eat in the desert while running a marathon? I mean, I think if you're running a marathon, you just have to, like, consume extremely, like, like, I mean, most marathoners eat, like, Big Mac sandwiches when they're, when they're on rest. Oh really? Oh, oh well, okay. Another another very. They dumb, eat those little Gatorade gummies, you know. Another dumb sidebar: If you want to watch anything about ultra marathons, watch this book. Watch this um, documentary on Amazon Prime called "The Race That Eats Its Young," and it's a uh, it's a. We should watch this actually. That'd be a good one. Um, it's a it's a race in uh, it's somewhere in Appalachia, Appalachia, not Appalachia. Oh wait, do you tell me about this this afternoon? Yeah, and it's a, and, and it's I can't remember what the actual race is called, but it is like a horrific race through like thickets and like over like, like in the woods just pretty much. terrible terrain that like you know it, it's been made famous because basically it was basically a guy's route um while he was trying to escape police wherever <laughs> this was like some like some like dirty old moonshiner was trying to run from the police and like he they kind of like this they kind of alleged that this was his route or like what he did like where he traveled through and obviously he didn't run it like an ultra marathon, but it's kind of his route, and it's like a hundred miles basically. <laughs> now it's a race. <laughs> and now it's a race, and it's like, and it's very, fa- it's a very famous like weird race. Anyway, um, I don't were really you, know. Were you were you saying that. that when we talked about this, what was it that like so many people like don't finish it? Oh, usually because only, like you started at like really late at night, and it's like yeah. not really well marked, and like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a weird combination of like an ultra marathon. But also, it's like, yeah, like, like a, a survivalist, hunt. Like, like scavenger hunt kind the, of thing. Like the markers of where you're supposed to like turn or do this or like where you're supposed to go or, like, you know, like, yeah, like your directions, um, you're basically given a map and like, but you can only, you're only really able to keep track of it by like finding these little pieces of paper that have been like nailed to like a random tree in this massive forest, you know, <laughs> like, it's crazy. Um, that sounds fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, and like I say, like, uh. I don't know how many people get like get to race it. They don't really let that all that many people do it, but it's probably like, you know, on the on the magnitude like twenty to fifty people run it every year, and like one or two finish. Yeah. Like at all. Huh. You know. That yeah, sounds fun. Let's we'll watch that. Yeah. 
So, back in the Sahara, 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 on the fourth day, April 14th of 1994, this is the longest run at like 53.6 miles or whatever, Morrow surges and turns up in fourth place overall. And around 1 p.m., temperatures rise to 115 degrees Fahrenheit in the desert, while Morrow has already run over 20 miles that day. He stops at the next checkpoint for water when the rising surface temperatures cause the wind to increase and swirl over like this big expanse of sand. The dudes begin to rise into the air and a sandstorm kicks up. So before the race, runners were told that they were to stop running if a sandstorm occurred. However, Morrow believes that if he remains stationary, he will become buried by the sand and lose his fourth place standing. Morrow keeps running and begins to lose runners nearby. He believes he knows where the trail is and continues running. The other runners at this point have wisely followed the instruction to stop running, wrap themselves in their sleeping bags to avoid the abrasions and respiratory tract damage that I guess can occur like while you're inhaling sands. The race officials stop the race for the day to resume the next day. However, Morrow is running, and while he's running, he's cut up by sand and wraps his head in his, in his like t-shirt. He crouches behind a bush to wait out the sandstorm, which lasts for another eight hours. It is now nightfall when all the other racers are now like sleeping to start the race the next day. And Morrow is crouched with his head like in a bag in a bush. Behind a bush, yes. A fucking rube. <laughs> Morrow realizes that now that he has lost the trail and all his fellow runners. He sets up camp for the night, defeated, and knows that he probably has lost his fourth place position. He plans to continue the next day, hopefully to finish the race before the allotted 36 hours for that leg expired, which would disqualify him. The next morning, he wakes up and realizes that the landscape looks totally alien compared to what he knew yesterday, which I'm like, how well do you know what the dunes around you look like? Yeah, I think... Like, like it's just sand. I think, I think it's by design supposed to be very homogenous in yeah. its entirety. Yeah, exactly. So his friend Giovanni, who got him into this race in the first place, realizes Morrow is missing at the next checkpoint this day, and he reports this to the race staff, who believe Morrow couldn't have not have gotten far and plans to send out a search team on the next morning. So even though Morrow knows he is in a pickle and has no clue where he is, he is not discouraged yet. He is upset that he is falling behind in the race, but figures he can use his map and compass to get back on the trail and maybe just find another runner. Morrow begins to run blindly and climb high dunes to scout for runners or the next checkpoint. He does this for four hours and then finally realizes that he is very lost. Meanwhile, the search team, which is aided by Bedouin trackers on land and in the air, dispatched with little luck. And I guess like the Bedouins are like people of the area that right. are like helping out. Yeah. They know Morrow only has two liters of water on him at most. And at this point will only likely last him to the end of the day in the hundred plus degree temperature. So Morrow begins walking to conserve his energy and pees into his now empty water bottle to drink later. Nice. He has food for a couple days, but is worried more about his water situation. It's, still, it's sterile and he likes to taste. Yep. That's dodgeball. Oh. He figures the search team will find him soon, but does not stop moving, which seems like a bad idea. Like, I feel like you just need to, like, post up, you know? Have you ever seen Dodgeball with Vince Vaughn? I think, yes. A long time ago, I have watched Dodgeball. Tremendous film. Continue. Yes. So he avoids walking in the midday to rest and, like, stay out of the sun. He tries to find shade and wears two hats, long sleeves, and, like, all his clothes to, like, keep the sun off him. Yep. But for the next two days, he sees no sign of life at all. Morrow finally... I mean, were there, like, was there signs of life before? Yeah, that's what I... I mean, he could, like, when you were running, you could, like, see other runners, like... Yeah. Somewhere, but, like, he is, like, I haven't seen a person in days. That's not good. That's a bad sign. Yeah. So, Morrow finally hears a helicopter on the evening of April 16th that is coming in his direction. This is a Moroccan police helicopter that was dispatched to, like, help with the search. Yep. Morrow could see the pilot's helmet. It got so close to him and so low... But so he lit up his like pen sized emergency flare that they like gave to all the runners in case of something bad happening. Yeah. And this pilot flies right past him, not seeing Morrow directly beneath him with his flare. So Morrow does not give up hope yet. On the morning of his seventh day in the desert, he sees an outline of a building. This is a small Muslim marabout shrine where nomadic Arab people stop as they like walk through the desert. Morrow finds no people in the shrine except a buried dead religious leader within the walls. The building has been filled with so Within much... Within the walls? Yeah, I mean, like... I, th in... I think he's, like, in, like, a little cove, you know, in the wall. Oh, I thought you were saying this guy, like, immediately started, like, tearing apart the drywall to, like, really investigate no, this whole no. structure, you know? It was... I don't know. They said he was, like, in the... Like, tucked away in a little okay. cove, you know? Okay, very well. Anyway. 
that's a a minuscule thing that's not that important. There's no people there. I'm here for it, though. This, All right, this, good. This is the sort of enriching comments I make, but now that I am aware of the subject matter. Okay. Yes. All righty. So, <laughs> the, the building is filled with sand due to the storm, and it's filled so high where he can, like, reach the rafters, which helps him find a bird's nest that has three eggs in it. So, he eats the eggs, gaining a little bit of hydration and nutrients. He hangs his Italian flag from the building's roof as a signal for search crews, and he remains inside the building in the shade for three days. Which must feel great to get out of the sun. Yeah. For a few days, even no, though it like yeah. sucks, you're in like a filled up like structure, but it'd feel nice to not be in the sun. No, I think, well, I'm sure like, yeah, like that's, you know, pretty, pretty sick. That's pretty know? clutch. Yeah, yeah like so, a, I'm sure you prefer like a nice ice cold glass of lemonade. But, but you know, that's, that's not an option yet. Yeah. So he waits for rescue, drinking his own urine and cooking food um, rations in his pee on a small portable stove. He eventually runs out of food and water, luckily finding a small colony of bats in the tower of this Marabout shrine. He drinks their blood for water. Will so he skip the part of him finding this colony of bats to then consuming their blood. Yeah. I guess there are some steps there. Well, I mean, he probably just saw bats flying around and then climbed up to this little and tower. And grabbed them out of the air like fucking Mr. Miyagi. Well, they gotta sleep sometime. He probably grabs them while they were sleeping. So he's sitting up in the rafters there, literally un- lulling them into comfort with him, like sitting like totally like silent until they go to sleep and then he grabs them. Once again, like Mr. Miyagi. Alright, maybe. No, I'm just saying that's amazing. Yeah. You know? This guy is actually very impressive how so he far, like this survives. this does sound like a nice dude's trip to like Orlando in a lot of ways. Have you drank bath blood in Orlando? You know, at the bars, you know, you get a nice kind of like red Kool-Aid. <laughs> you don't know what's in that. <laughs> yeah, they call it tiger's blood. You know, <laughs> Might be a bat. There's actually tiger's blood in there. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. So he eats the bats raw. He t- grabs them, twists their neck, and uses a knife to like mix up their insides and then slurps the bats out. He says he ate about 20 of them and justified eating them as, I only did what they do to their prey. Which I'm like, these weren't vampire bats. And also, like, bats these bats don't eat take punks. a knife and like and like and make a, a slushy. Yeah, yeah. They, don't, they don't puree their opponents. No. You know? Yeah, I don't really know what his justification on that one was. So he also reports sucking on wet wipes, which is confusing because like, don't those have alcohol in them? Yeah, it's kind of badass. That's where I'm pretty right. <laughs> that reminds me of ocean water where people drink uh, mouthwash to get a nice buzz. Yeah, sounds pretty nice. Yeah. There. He also licked morning dew <laughs> off the rock walls of the shrine, and he took anti-diarrhea medicine so that he could, like, avoid losing water through pooping when he, like, had a tummy ache. That's actually extremely smart. That it, that's what I like, that was extremely smart, but also probably really bad for you. Like, if, like, you're probably eating things that, like, your body's trying to get rid of, and you're just like, nope, clog it up. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Is that like... But no, that's is, really smart. Is that like Jeremine? No, Jeremine, like, is anti-nausea. Yeah. Anti-diarrhea, like, because when you... It's like an ion weird imbalance Imodium, that you're. Right? I Imo- think it is Imodium. Yeah, yeah. I've never taken Imodium. I've taken Jeremine. Pretty righteous stuff. Jeremine's kind of awesome. Yeah. I had to take it after. Or they gave it to us when we were in Guatemala when we all had the, the old traveler's diarrhea. Yeah. And that was pretty awesome. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty good. Still pooped a lot, but yeah. didn't throw up. Nice. Yes. Anyway. So, on his fourth day in the shrine, he hears a plane flying over, so he takes out all his items that can catch on fire, sets them on fire as a signal outside. He writes a big SOS in the sand, but another sandstorm kicks in and obscures his smoke signal and SOS symbol. Also ruins his day. Yes, ruined his day. So he returns to the shrine feeling defeated and realizes that he most likely will not make it out of the desert. He realizes that his body will probably be found sooner if he takes his own life in the shrine rather than wandering and dying of dehydration out in the dunes. He wants his body to be found quickly so his wife and children can receive his police pension rather than waiting like the 10 years for his body not to be found and then like him be declared dead. Mm-hmm. So he writes a note to his wife with charcoal and slits his wrists. But when he wakes up, he realizes that he was too dehydrated, causing his blood not to flow and to clot very quickly, saving him from death by extinguination. So he takes this as a sign that he was not meant to die and is now rejuvenated to make his way home. This guy's got such a positive attitude. Well, he tried to take his life and then it just didn't work because he had no water left in his body. Yeah, but that's like such <laughs> it's a... so bad. Yeah, but that's like also it's like... The guy's definitely like, open to encouragement, you know? Uh, he was, yeah. He yeah. was encouraged by not dying, yeah, that yeah, is for yeah. sure. So he remembers that the race is to end in a mountain village somewhere, and he can see, like, mountains on the horizon, so he sets off on the morning of April 21st with his remaining belongings towards the mountains. He realizes that there is animal life all around him, eating snakes and beetles. 
He is well aware of his dire physical condition, feeling his watch get looser by the day and has gotten to the point that he could not urinate anymore. He later says that he became one with the desert at this point and says that his inner caveman emerged. He became hyper alert, found roots, and he dropped like items along as like breadcrumbs for people to find him which is just littering in the desert. But he really sounds like he had, like, like movies where people are lost and there's, like, they always play the typical, like, like, well, like, do music where it's like, oh, la, 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 you know? That, that, and you also hear, regardless of where you are, you hear didgeridoo music, like, yes, oh, that, yeah, that's what I wanted to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, which is, like, which is, like, literally almost exclusively an Australian Yeah, and it's like, that's yeah. not here at all. But, like, yeah, like some dudes gonna be lost, like, in, like, the Badlands of, like, Montana, and, like, can, eventually... Yeah. And it, like, you can hear the bugs, like, skittering on the yeah. leaves. Either way, so two days after Maro's disappearance, his wife was reading an Italian newspaper when she learned of her husband's disappearance in the desert, so no one from the race had contacted her. She found out in, like, a newspaper that this guy was missing. Which I would be pissed. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be so her brother lost. and Maro's brother flew to Morocco to join the search along with Italian officials due to him being a national athlete and police officer. Not some Joe Schmo that they were just like, yeah, whatever, yeah, bye-bye. Yeah. He's, he's, Gotta die in the he's desert. He's a chef boy already. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So the search teams find his like all his stuff in the shrine that he camped out in, complete with his Italian flag. But at this point, searchers were, they, they were looking for a body because they were like, there's no way. Someone can still be alive after this. On April 22nd, Morrow finally came upon an oasis. The oasis had no trees like the ones you see in, like, movies, but was pretty much just like a Aladdin. big puddle of water. Yeah. Big puddle of dirty water that Morrow just immediately, like, flopped into. He tried to drink water, but his throat was so swollen at first that he could barely get drops down without throwing up. Eventually, he just could took small sips every 10 minutes, and he pretty much just spent the day, like, laying in this big puddle and just, like, slowly, like, sipping water out of this puddle for a day. And on April 23rd, Morrow filled his water bottle from the puddle and began his walk. While he was walking, he spotted fresh animal poop next to a small footprint. And so he followed this and crested a hill when he spotted a young girl with a small herd of goats. And this was the first human he'd seen in nine days. He was so excited that he rushed up to the girl, who was obviously very scared and screamed at this dirty, very sunburnt, sunken-eyed man. He followed her to a <laughs> he followed her to a nearby encampment where he met her tribe. These people were a caravan of nomadic Tureg people. The men were out hunting, so the women of the tribe fed him mint tea and goat's milk after they gave him or they tried to give him food, but he threw it back up. This guy vomited a lot in this. Well, if you've been starved long enough, just overeating will like cut, your will kill stomach's you. like no, yeah, it just can't take it. Like a lot of like, I think like a lot of the Jewish people in like the concentration camps. That no, no, it was ah, it was the Dahmer party. Oh, a lot yes. of the Dahmer party got rescued, but then ate too much and then immediately died. Yeah, just because yeah. their like body couldn't handle it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there's something about like yeah, like it like basically like causes like all all your innards to basically just rupture. Mm-hmm. Because they've shrunken down so much, and that or makes like, sense. actually, that's probably not medically accurate. But there's something about if you've been yeah. starved for long enough, and if you just eat a bunch, it you, yeah, absolutely kills you. Yeah, yeah, hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. So when the men finally returned, they took Morrow to the nearest village, which was a several-hour camel ride away. They turned Morrow over to the military police, fearing that he might have been a criminal. The police then blindfolded him, fearing he was a Moroccan spy. But upon questioning, they realized that his they recognized his name and from the missing person flyers that were sent out over the past nine days. The officer welcomed him to Algeria, so they rushed him to the infirmary, and he finally got the strength to call his wife a few days later on April 24th, and he was pretty ready to, like, get scolded by this woman. But she picked up the phone right after she had put their children to bed and said that her husband said, Hey, Cynthia, it's me. Did you have a funeral for me yet? This guy seems like he has a great attitude, though. This guy, yeah, this guy, this guy seems like he has a pretty, uh, zest. This guy's a nice zest for life. I like yeah, this guy. for sure. So later, Morrow learned that once he was thrown off course, he strayed 180 miles southeast over the mountains and 25 miles into Algeria. That's kind of impressive. So he lost 33 pounds in nine days, which was 20% of his original body weight which he they discovered when he got to that hospital. He weighed 99 pounds at the time of his rescue, so he was a very tiny guy. But, we, I mean, he was a marathoner, so he pounds. probably, yeah. So he, so, he, so he lost 33 pounds, Yeah, said? so he was originally, like, yeah, was 130 pounds. pounds. That's, like... That's a, a tiny guy. That's, uh, that's not a big dude. Well, I mean, he's an ultra-marathoner. You're not going to be, like, a lineman. Yeah, that, yeah. But, I don't know. But still, that's... To lose 33 pounds and only be 130-ish pounds, that's crazy. Yeah, it's a lot. 
Um, so his eyes and his liver were extremely damaged, and he could only take liquids for months after he was rescued. And he was given 16 liters of intravenous fluids while he was in the hospital. His skin was leathered to the point that Morrow compared itself to a tortoise. He told his wife not to worry, though. He would still be beautiful. And he spent seven days in the Algerian hospital when he's finally flown home to a hero's welcome to Italy. He had interviews and photos with Italian dignitaries, and he is dubbed the Robinson Caruso of the Sahara, which I didn't really know who Robinson Caruso was, but I guess he, it is a story from Daniel Defoe about a fictional English seaman shipwrecked on an island for 28 years. I always mix up Swiss Family Robinson and Robinson Crusoe, but it's more no, or less the I same. I did the same thing. So I was is, like, wasn't there multiple people in this Robinson story? Swiss, but... Family, Swiss Family Robinson was like, yeah, it was like a family mm-hmm. was on a ship and the ship sank. And I want to say it was just their family on the ship. Didn't make a lot I think there was the captain too, but something I think happened with the captain. I can't remember. Yeah. Oh, maybe I should read that book. I liked Swiss Family Robinson. It's, all, it's, it's like Treasure Island where like the idea and concept sounds pretty fun. But like like a lot of kind of old English books like that one, it's like Ooh, there's no. an extra couple hundred pages of like needless description of varying things that are not needed, you know. And like the whole story is really about about fifty pages, and usually they're three hundred page books. Oh and yeah, there's a lot of if you can useless picture, fluff. If you can picture the useless detail, that you gotta sift through to read these. The things. movie's good. <laughs> yeah, I said movie's fantastic. Um, but yeah, so. Some people doubted Morrow's story, believing that it would be physically impossible for him to survive as long as he did in the way that he described it. Sports physiologists say that he would have become dehydrated far earlier and not survived. The Marathon de Sable was worried about bad publicity, so the founder, Patrick Bauer, accused Morrow of making up the story or exaggerating it for personal gain. He even accused Morrow's wife of being in on the lie for the promises of a book or movie deal. Mm. Morrow called these accusations foolish as they never received a penny for his story and considered suing Patrick for defamation and poorly marketing, marking the marathon trail, but never actually followed through with it, saying their beef is not legal, rather personal. So they just don't like each other. Yeah, Patrick, sense. the founder, he created the marathon after his um, own trail so I guess he, he kind of seems jealous that Morrow has a cooler story than him because he made this marathon that like yeah. followed some trail that he originally like hiked yeah. as kind of like a flex. And then, yeah. I don't know, this was just cooler. But either way, later evidence is found that kind of validates Morrow's story. A Roman film crew um, f- in, for a 1995 film found that like Maribel shrine again with leftover bat skeletons just as Morrow described it. Plus, Morrow's physical condition at his point of recovery, it is easy to believe his story. He even had a scar in his wrist where he tried to take his own life, like as he said he did. It took Morrow several months before he could eat solid food and almost two years to fully recover. While he regained his um, longing for the desert and begins training for the Marathon de Sable as soon as he could again. So, like, the whole time he was recovering, he was just thinking about going back. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. That's pretty wild. So, Morrow said, the desert fever does exist, and it's a disease I've absolutely caught. He returned (laughs) and finished the race in 1998 and ends up running the marathon six times and placed 13th in 2001. What are other examples of, like, X fever? We're like, oh, I've caught the X fever. Got of, like, it. something that you shouldn't catch. Like, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. I don't know. Or, or, it's kind of just like an adrenaline rush, I feel like. Like, if something, like, crazy happens and then people, like, kind of keep, like, chasing adrenaline. I don't yeah. know. I can't think of, like, a, something that is comparable to this. I want to say jungle fever, but I don't think that's actually a very politically correct term anymore. No. I AJ, write in and, th- and tell us what jungle fever is all about. What What is jungle fever? I don't know. AJ's going to tell us. Why point. is AJ going to tell us? I don't know. I'm just so you're just signing her a task to look it up? I'm, I'm just divvying out homework over here. <laughs> AJ! I'm too, I, I'm too busy. <laughs> AJ was supposed to record this episode with us, but we got we forgot. So. It's been like a full week. <laughs> it has been. <laughs> Sorry, AJ. Sorry. So, Morrow and his wife got an amicable divorce due to him willingly putting his life on the line and his unwillingness to give up these races. They partnered up and wrote a book, which was published in 2020, called Those 10 Days Beyond Life. So, I guess, like, he was like, I'm going to run the marathon again. The wife was like, no, you're not. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And she's like, okay, bye. You know, I will say a time people are too passionate. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we're not passionate enough. No, no, no. I think this guy's too passionate. I think he... This guy had kids and he, had, and he, and he, got, and he got, like, fucking desert This guy fever, said fucking Which also kids. sounds made up. And then he, yeah, like, so sometimes people are just, like, too passionate, you know? Yeah, I don't know. AJ, think... write in. Can people be too passionate? 
All right, AJ. AJ, more homework. Oh, yeah, two pieces of homework. One A is jungle fever. One B is why is it not PC to, to talk yes. about? And then number two is can people be too passionate about things? And why is it mostly Italians? Maro has run eight desert marathons and he is now 67 years old. His story had heavy media representation, including being featured on the National Geographic Channel's documentary Expeditions to the Edge, the Sahara Nightmare. Episode 5, which is called Lost in the Desert of the 2019 Netflix series Losers, which we should watch. And Bear Grylls' Escape from Hell, Episode 3, Desert, recreates aspects of Maro's survival. So when Morrow ran the race, there was 80 participants in 1994, and now there are over 1,300 participants making the race a giant train, which is much harder to get lost, I guess, now. Makes which sense. is probably a good thing. Yeah. But, but yeah, Morrow also said that runners are now equipped with a much larger flare, which is about, which they said weighs 500 grams, which is about a pound. And they are not happy about this extra weight, but they're like... You need a larger flare because Morrow's little little guy didn't work did not very well. Do anything, yeah. But yeah, yeah, so I guess this Marathon de Sable is like a charity race now. But it seems like a pretty cool cool race. But in yeah. a very European fashion, they supply smokers with a pocket ashtray for the race. And I'm like, yeah. what ultra marathons are smoking cigarettes? It's actually weird. Apparently, like, there's a lot. Of, like, well, and this is like maybe not like at the at the modern like cutting edge of top marathon but that's a good history of like long distance runners Ooh, who just were, like chain smoking who were absolute chain smokers maybe it just you know? opens up your like air sacks i, I don't guess know. you know yeah but bam yeah. so that was that was the the survival story of maro prosperity a tremendous story yes i have i have a was forest paying attention segment I have a lot because I don't have to ask you all these, I guess, because it was also made up for two people, AJ, since you're not here. All right, we'll Answer hit. these independently on your own, but okay, we'll but hit. are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready for it. All right, time. so where what? was Maro from exactly? Italy. But what part of Italy? Paris. Sicily. Same thing. Continue. All right. Um, what was Maro's weight when he exited the desert? Oh, um, 99 pounds. Correct. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. So, which day slash leg of the race did the sandstorm occur and Morrow get lost? Uh, uh, nine. Four. Four. Oh, I was going to say four. Damn it. All right. Name three of the five events in Olympic pentathlon. Um, okay. Three of the five? Yes. Okay. Um, three of the five. Olympic pentathlon. There's shooting. Yes. Fencing. Yes. Running. Do you remember how far? No. 3,200 meters. Oh, I was going to say that. There's also cup stacking. Yes. That is the final leg and most important leg of, yes. the, of the thing. But yeah, so it's fencing, 200 meter freestyle swim, equestrian show jumping. I thought you were going to say that one. Pistol shooting, 3,200 meter run. Yeah. But yes. And they're good and they just keep going. Right? Oh, okay. Where, where How m- I, the, they're not really very exciting. They're definitely like, were you... Is that thunder? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, we're getting a big storm right now. So, how many square miles is the Sahara Desert? 60. 3.6 million. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. What was Maro's ex-wife's, Cinzia's, occupation at the time they met? Fitness trainer. Russian-English translator. All right. (laughs) (laughs) What was the name of the group of people who brought Maro out of the desert on Camelback? The Turogs. Two rogs. Yeah. Two reg. Yeah. Nomadic two reg people. Far, far closer than close enough. That yes, <laughs> that's pretty good. So I also had a segment where I wanted to test your knowledge of desert survival. Um. Yeah, absolutely. Hit me. Uh, all right. Hey. So actually, I didn't, I didn't format these as questions. I just wrote down facts that I need. I should have gone back and formulated into questions. Ask me the questions. But I will ask you some questions. Ask me the questions. So... After how many days do people who are stranded in the desert usually die from lack of water? Three. That is correct. Yes. How how long do people who are typically lost at sea last? Two. Six to seven days. Six to seven? Six to seven. <laughs> they typically, they last. <laughs> what, what a classic uh, Madagascar 67. two. 67. <laughs> well, you ever seen Madagascar 2? Yeah. How long is it going to take us to like fix this plane? You know, like, yeah. oh, I don't know, like, uh, you know, four to five days. 45 days? <laughs> four to five days. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I'll just Probably. read my, my footnotes on this. People you lose about nine hundred milliliters of sweat per hour in the sun in hundred and four degree temperatures. That's a ton. That's almost a liter. Yeah. That's a lot of sweat. Yeah. Um it is suggested to keep covered, don't remove clothing to stay cool, and avoid losing water through evaporation. So you're supposed to even wear like gloves because your hands can like sweat a lot. 
It is recommended to drink water, no water, in the first 24 hours to put your body into survival mode. Okay. So if you're lost in the desert, don't drink water right away. Yeah. It's like stop drinking water and then drink water later. Um, Weird. are you supposed to drink urine in the desert? No. That is true. It dehydrates you due to salt and urea. Yeah. And pretty much it didn't it said in all caps on every survival website, do not drink salt water. I guess I'm just like looking at these and I'm trying to ask think of how to ask a, them in a question form. You can you maybe fill in the blank. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. If you're looking for drinking water in the desert, look for blank, which may signal groundwater. Birds. Vegetation. Okay. I think birds might too, you know, yeah, if there's sure. animals lingering yeah. there. So the website said to dig a narrow hole about a foot deep. And if there is water, wait a few hours for it to fill, which makes sense. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Avoid X macronutrient because digesting it takes up more water than other macronutrients. Almonds. Is that a macronutrient? <laughs> the modern elite would tell us so today. <laughs> dig what what is something now. that's in almonds? Carbs. Protein. Really? You're supposed to avoid proteins because digesting it takes up more water. Well, I don't know. That's some hippie bullshit. Good you would deal. not survive. No. You would immediately try to eat protein. No, I'd be like, like where's my bush light in my, like, in my, like, my flank steak? Continue. <laughs> my beef jerky. Yeah. Drink blank as it easy, it is easy to digest and conserves body water. Bat blood. It is. Drink blood. <laughs> yeah, drink, drink blood because yeah! your body can digest it easily and it conserves water. Hell yeah, brother. But, but yeah, that that was all my, my trivia I wanted to ask. I you. think I did pretty good. You decent. actually did pretty good. I'm gonna We've been watching a, a lot of Naked yeah, and Afraid, so I expected yeah. you to be decent at this. Yeah. But but cool. I'll, I used quite a few sources, so I'll just put them in my, in my whatchamacallit, in the source notes. But there's a lot of articles from a Recoil Off the Grid magazine, a BBC magazine. My Favorite Murder was where I first heard about this, which was pretty cool. Mm. But, yeah, this was a, a, an interesting, interesting episode. Tremendous episode. AJ, Tremendous. you got about AJ? 48 hours. <laughs> come, come back with the answers to these questions yeah. that we asked for you. Yeah. But, but yeah, well, that was all. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. <laughs>